0: Says God's word, give your attention to it. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Amen. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Give us, O Lord, the grace of your Holy Spirit as we come to these these words We confess that they are spiritually understood and that we are weak and often not spiritual. But we pray for your spirit to help us now to illumine our minds and hearts that we would rest in the peace that your son gives to us. We thank you for your word and pray that you build us up in it now as we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning in our scripture, a passage from Isaiah 9, that famous uh, selection of verses that often near the end of the year around Christmas we sing or hear read, we hear the proclamation that the coming Messiah will be called the Prince of Peace. That will, deter, will define his reign as the sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We also read in the Great Commission passage Uh, Jesus' announcement after his resurrection to his disciples that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. We just sang in Psalm 93 that the Lord reigns over all. He is the prince of the world. He is the king of the cosmos. This is where his gospel has been headed all the way through from the beginning of Luke's gospel to the end. That there is a king who has come. He's brought a kingdom and his kingdom is a kingdom he forges through his own self-giving sacrifice. Through his death, paying the penalty for our sins and then his victorious rising again on the third day. And so as we get to these verses in Luke's gospel, we are considering Jesus as our Savior, but also as our King, as our Savior King, as the one who has gained the victory over Satan, sin, and death, the one who brings us a release from the bondage of the kingdom of darkness. As this passage opens up, the uh, disciples are gathered in that familiar place The upper room, it's where just earlier in the week they were gathered together and Jesus was teaching them of his coming departure. Jesus was um, painstakingly, one might say, going through uh, what they would experience. He was giving them comfort. He was trying to console them beforehand. He was preparing them for what would occur when he would meet his end a few days later. And one of the key things that Jesus teaches his disciples or taught his disciples in that upper room in the week prior is this. He says, and we have this quoted on the front of the bulletin, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus' disciples are very troubled by his words. He said he's leaving, he's going back to the Father where he is going, they cannot come. And it left them in a very confused state. And that's why he said to them, I give you peace. Well, we're back in that upper room as this passage opens. This situation is one of tense excitement. Uh, there's been a number of accounts that the disciples, the 11, have received of the resurrected Lord. Uh, the women have given uh, testimony that Jesus has been raised, that the tomb is empty. The, uh, Peter himself has received uh, a vision, an, an interaction with the risen Lord. Now two disciples, uh, Clopas and his partner, now they have returned from a 14-mile round trip to Emmaus, and they met Jesus on the road there, and they return uh, telling the good news of their meeting. It's a, I can imagine this is like... A very There's a lot of commotion in that upper room, as verse 36 tells us, as they were talking about these things. As everyone's probably excitedly uh, recounting uh, what occurred and what Jesus looked like and how they knew it was him. There's a robust excitement and probably a good amount of fear mixed in together in that upper room. And amidst all of that commotion, Jesus enters. And look at verse 36. As they were... Conversing about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And I can imagine at that moment, a bit of a hush came over the room. And uh, not only is there a supernatural element here, and that we read in other gospel accounts that the doors were locked. Nevertheless, Jesus, though in a physical body, just like ours, yet resurrected, he's able to enter the room. There's a hush amongst all of the commotion. And Jesus simply says three words, peace to you, peace to you all. And that's powerful because, again, just a week earlier, he's prepared them for this moment when they were so troubled, when they were so beside themselves with anguish and confusion, they they couldn't understand what was unfolding. Jesus promised them peace then, and now he delivers on his promise, and he brings to them peace. Peace. He gives them a benediction, a good word of peace. Now, what is this peace? What does he mean when he says, "Peace be to you"? Well, this peace is a whole life contentment. It is a whole life blessedness. It is a cessation of conflict and enmity and and, and guilt between you and God. It is the blessings of the age to come, breaking into them presently in that upper room. I think it's helpful to contrast this piece with its opposite. Because the opposite of it is guilt and sin and exile. It, It is God against us and us against God. I mean, just consider for a bit, the situation in Jeremiah's day or in Ezekiel's day. As these prophets were called by God to preach to the people of God, particularly in Jerusalem, and to announce beforehand their coming exile, that because of their sins, God will bring about judgment. And especially Jeremiah, he went and he preached and he preached and he preached and he preached that message to the people, and they did not believe. And worse than their unbelief or apathy in the face of the coming judgment, there were other preachers whom the people flocked to. There were other preachers who came and preached the message saying, Peace to Jerusalem. Peace for God's people. We have the temple. We have God with us. We have his promises and the old covenant. You have no need of worry. Should all the armies of God come, all the armies of the nations come against us, we have the Lord Himself. Therefore, there is no worry you can have you have peace right now. There was a completely opposite message being preached in the land and the people loved it. So much so that God said of, through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel that these false prophets pre- preach a message that says peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's the opposite of what Jesus brings to his disciples here. Not the threat of judgment. It's a peace that, that means it's, there's not a threat of judgment. It truly is now that there is peace made between God and his people. There is no longer exile, God's people are being brought to him, redeemed out from the nations, uh, gathered together as the new temple of God, that very temple that was prophesied in the end of Ezekiel's prophecy. This is a message now of a cessation of judgment, the end of exile, no more enmity between God and man, a peace that is forged by Jesus himself, who is our peace. This is the first word Jesus spoke to his gathered saints that Sunday evening. And it's the word that he speaks to us today. And so, what I want us to do as we go through these verses is really focus on uh, really two aspects. There are three points in your bulletin. The third one is kind of folded into the first two. And that is that there is peace for first the troubled and the doubtful. That's what the saints are experiencing in that upper room. And then, secondly, there is peace for the nations. And I say the third point is folded into this because that covers about all of us, the nations, the Gentiles, and those of us, those of you perhaps who might be currently in a state of troubledness or doubtfulness. Here, Jesus' words are very relevant and good. So let's jump right in as we... Pick up again in verse uh, 36 or maybe verse 37 as we uh, consider Jesus' announcement of peace here and what that means for his disciples in the upper room and then for us. Verse 37, we read that after Jesus has uh, abruptly ended the commotion by appearing there before his disciples that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost or a spirit. Uh, This scared them to death. It's like their first gut, excuse me, their first gut reaction to seeing Jesus is that here is a spirit. Uh, They didn't believe. They had been through a lot in the past week, just three nights ago, and it had so uh, affected them that they couldn't put two and two together. Here is the resurrected Lord in their midst, and so they were frightened. And so he says another word to them. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He knows what is going on inside of them. They are beside themselves. And these doubts that are swirling around, no doubt driven by amazement or perhaps a lack of understanding of God's word and promise and his ways. The truthfulness of the accounts of Jesus's having been raised. Uh, It's in the midst of that doubtful situation that Jesus appears and he ministers peace to them. Now, how does he do that? First, he does so by inviting them to experience him as the risen Christ. Look at his words here. He says, see my hands and my feet without showing them his hands and feet that it is I myself. Now, why would he do that? Why would he say, look at my hands, look at my feet. This will prove that it is is me. Well, because those hands and those feet still bore the scars of crucifixion. Perhaps even the wounds there, very fresh. Yet Jesus is resurrected. It shows that even in his perfected body, he still bears the wounds of uh, of his sacrifice. And it is a proof to them that he is the same one who was nailed to the cross. The Apostle John, as he writes to the Ephesian church in 1 John, will say, that which we have held and touched and seen with our eyes, like, that's what I'm proclaiming to you, John says. Meaning, the Son of God who stood in their midst and who offered his hands and feet before them, even saying, touch and see of spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have. Acts 1.3 says that Jesus, throughout these 40 days after his resurrection, provided many proofs to his disciples that he had been raised. This is one of those many proofs. It is his actual hands for them to hold and touch. I would say that we often uh, take to task one of Jesus's four disciples, old Thomas, who is often called Doubting Thomas because he in uh, the other gospel accounts, we read that uh, he perhaps wasn't there this moment. This is the first, the first day. This is the same day that uh, began really early in the morning with Jesus' resurrection from the tomb. It's the same day on which the, the, the two traveling to Emmaus uh, got to Emmaus, discovered Jesus had been with them, and then they quickly, with haste, returned to Jerusalem, It's as they're talking about these things that Jesus displays himself, his hands and his feet, to his gathered disciples there, to those who are are gathered. And, And this doesn't include Thomas here. And yet Jesus gave them far more proof than Thomas even required. So we call Thomas doubting Thomas, but no, the whole lot of them were very doubtful and very troubled. And Jesus calls them to experience him in their very midst. Now, this experience is something not to be downplayed. Uh, In their call, in their ministry, it is absolutely necessary. You and I don't have the same experience. We don't see the risen Christ, and we don't have him stand in our midst to the point that we touch his hands and his feet, and we see the wound in his side. We don't have that same experience with the risen Christ, for he has ascended to the right hand of the Father Um, But it does teach us an important point that experiencing Christ does matter. It is a vital part of the Christian life. Yet it is not divorced from what we read next, which is the word of Christ. Namely, the way we experience Christ is through his word. We have a more sure prophetic announcement that is Jesus' own words. He, In their presence, he showed them his hands and feet, verse 40. and They still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Again, Thomas uh, just had Jesus rebuke him lightly, and he immediately confessed, my Lord and my God. The rest of the disciples took a little bit longer. And he said to them, you know, even again, they, they still don't believe. So he says, do you have anything to eat? And he took a piece of fish and ate it. Uh, not perhaps because he loved fish, but because he... Uh, was proving to them again that he's not a spirit. Spirits don't eat, and yet he clearly ate. And then he turns to them and says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be uh, fulfilled. In other words, what does he do? He first allows him to experience him, but then it quickly moves to the word of God. We saw this last week. It's really what the, angel, it's what the angels directed the women at the tomb to. Remember what he said? They proclaimed. In other words, listen to his word. It's what Jesus uh, directed the two on the road to Emmaus to. You know, he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he goes into and, and Moses and the prophets and he gives them a biblical theological lesson on that, on that uh, roadway, and he unfolds the scriptures before them and how they proclaim his suffering and then entrance into glory. We have a more sure uh, foundation than just bare experience. Even the greatest experience we could have of Christ himself, uh, apart from the word of God, uh, isn't all there is. I mean, the word of God itself is a more sure Testimony. We have this from the words of Peter, who uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and following, he gives an account of the transfiguration. We saw this earlier in Luke's Gospel, where Peter says, I was there. I was standing there. I was eyewitnesses of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born, by him, or born to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased, He said, we heard this voice. We were with him on the holy mountain, Peter says. We had that triumphant experience of Christ with us. But then he says, there is uh, something more fully confirmed that you would do well to pay attention to. In words, there is a more sure testimony that goes beyond even what your eyes see and your hands touch. And that is the prophetic word. That's why Jesus directs his disciples here to what he has said and what the Old Testament scriptures prophesy. He goes to the word of God. Look at the extent of Jesus's um, uh, word here, the extent of where he goes. We read here that he turns to the law of Moses and to the prophets and to the Psalms and says that they are all things in them written about me, must be fulfilled Uh, in that day and time when you just had the hebrew bible just what had what we call the old testament it was made of three parts it was made of the law of moses we talked about this last week this is the first five books of the bible and it was made of the prophets which included some of the writings like first and second samuel and then it included the writings or here the psalms kind of referred to by its largest book in it Um, It included um, Proverbs and the wisdom literature and um, things like that. So Jesus is basically saying to them, the whole Bible that you know, that you hold in your hands or that you go to synagogue to hear, every bit of it testifies, proclaims, points to, is unfolding a message about me. And what is that message you see it here in verse 46. It is that the Christ or the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, it's the basic message of the gospel. Now look though, what Jesus did before he proclaimed this basic message. This is perhaps uh, the key verse to grasp here. Verse 45, you know, he could have just opened up the Bible or the scroll and just gone to town with a theological lecture. And uh, he, even the son of God, even Jesus himself here could have done that for hours and it not have been as fruitful as one could wish. What does he do? Verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There was, they were clouded up until this point. Or as the Apostle Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians, there was a veil over their minds as they read the Old Covenant. But not anymore. Jesus, by his Spirit, takes that veil away. He opens their minds. It's like the, the illustration that's often given is the Old Covenant. This goes back to Augustine. The Old Covenant is like a room, and it's uh, filled with treasures, But there are no lights in the room. The New Testament comes and turns on the light. And now you can see what once you could just feel and touch. That what once was found in type and shadow is now seen in its resplendent light of the new covenant. This is uh, Jesus uh, illuminating scripture for them. We have a whole doctrine we hold to. And it's a vital doctrine. It's one we should love. And it's one we should build our lives on. And it's the doctrine of illumination. It's it's why we pray after reading scriptures that God would take a passage of scripture and cause it like a light to shine in our minds and hearts, to illumine the darkness in us with the light of his word. This is what is required to understand the scriptures. I mean, someone who's not a believer uh, can read the Bible and just having a good grasp of literary convention and faithful study methods and things can understand a lot, but A true understanding, a true grasping of the significance of the Word of God, the Old or New Covenant, is only had by this way, through this means, through illumination. It's why the Apostle Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 2 that no eye has seen and no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. He doesn't just leave it there and says, Well, we're all like hopeless. We just have, we're just like speculating here. No, he says, but those things, the Spirit has revealed to us. And Paul says, I'm making it known now to you. Like, it takes spiritual understanding to grasp a work, that, a book, a text, a message that is spiritually authored and spiritually discerned. And God opens our minds to understand it. This is what the apostles needed. It's what you and I need today. Illumination. To understand the scriptures as they point us to the risen and reigning and peace-giving Son of God. Now, there's a lot that you could say here to apply this. That would be the connection between illumination and peace. um, Or how illumination can overcome troubled hearts or uh, severe doubts. That is, it requires first God's work. And so we're dependent upon the Lord in all times of our lives, but especially in times of trouble, in times where our soil, our, our soul is in turmoil within us. Think of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? There's the call to hope in God. And that hope in God is, is given to us by God himself. It's not, in other words... It's not on our shoulders to drum up enough attention to pay to Scripture, to drum up enough faith to believe Scripture. It's not like all on our shoulders to jump into the Bible and find a help in times of need. No, God is the one who we depend upon at all times in the Christian life, but especially when our minds are troubled or when we are filled with doubts. It's not to run away from the Lord, not to think it's all on our shoulders. But to look to the Lord and to pray and to say, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your instruction. It's to say, even grab hold of this verse, Lord, the way you open the minds of your disciples, open my mind to understand your scriptures because I am troubled and doubtful. There's a connection between illumination and fully grasping and living out of the peace that God forges between us and himself. It means every time you read scripture, you should pray that the Lord helps you to see what he would have you see there. It means that every time you read scripture, you do so as an act of faith-filled dependence upon the Lord. It means that when your heart is troubled and when your mind is filled with doubts, the best place you can go to is scripture and to depend upon the Lord that you, as his sheep, would hear his voice. And the Lord would give you exactly what you need for that day, just like he promises to give you your daily bread. Because it's in the scriptures and it's through illumination where peace is grasped. And sometimes it's just the simple, basic message of the gospel. That Christ died for your sins, rose again on the third day, and now calls you to repentance that you might walk in his ways. Like this isn't, uh, it isn't spiritual rocket science. It's a dependence upon the Lord. Now, these things are necessary for service with God or for the Lord. We see this in the disciples here, and this is true in our life as well. What Jesus does here is more than just answer their doubts or minister to them in their troubles. He's preparing them for the task that he is placing before them. He's preparing them for the task to bring this good news message to the nations. Look at the end of verse 47. He proclaims that this is what the old covenant teaches, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of the Messiah to all nations, to every tribe and tongue and language under heaven, to all the families of earth, beginning in Jerusalem. And he says to the, his disciples here, you are my witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. And I am sending the promise of my father upon you. Stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. We see that this peace that Jesus gave to his disciples is also for the nations. It's not just for them in that upper room. It's not just for the city of Jerusalem and God's people, Israel. Israel. It's for those who are far off as well. It's for the Gentiles. It's for the coastlands. For those whom Jesus will bring in. Sheep that are not of this fold. That he will gather together into one flock. It's Jesus for the nations. He is He who is a light unto the Gentiles. Even as we heard this morning. Jesus who brings the peace of God to the peoples of the world. This is why he is called The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's why he said he came to seek and save the lost. It's why 1 John tells us he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Meaning all the peoples of earth. Meaning the nations. Meaning people from every tribe and tongue and language. Jesus brings peace to the nations. And he does so through his apostles, whom he is now preparing to go to the ends of the earth. This is Luke's great commission, just as we read it in Matthew this morning. Here is Luke's rendition of these of this great uh, call to bring the good news of the Messiah to all the nations. Notice where Luke focuses uh, their attention. It's on their identity. They are witnesses of these things, but also on God's power. Just as he earlier, you could say, uh, brings out that in order to understand the Scriptures, we need God's work in us through the work of illumination. Here he focuses on their gospel witness and call and says this must come to you from God's power. You can't do it in your own flesh. You can't preach and proclaim and witness in your own strength. You must be clothed with power from on high. And so wait in Jerusalem until that day. And what is he talking about? What is the Father's promise that he's sending upon them? What is that power from on high? But it's the Holy Spirit. It is the one who gives illumination. It's the one who then gives the power of God for service to the peoples of the world. It's what the church received on the day of Pentecost when the tongues of fire fell from heaven And when the apostles were filled with the Spirit and proclaimed the gospel, even in different languages, a foreshadowing of this day when all tribes and peoples and languages will be brought to the Lord. Here, the Spirit is promised to his people that they would go forth equipped to proclaim his name. Now, this is true of the official apostles. This is their, uh, their training. This is uh, prerequisites for what it means to be an apostle. I mean, even in Acts 1, as the, the, the 11 gather to select one to replace Judas, what do they set forth as criteria for being an apostle, like an official, capital A apostle? Well, it involves having seen the resurrected Christ and having been with them as he ministered, which would involve like seeing his hands and feet and touching him and, and been there to hear his teaching and perhaps been there in the upper room. It involved that kind of, of witness, that this capital A apostles, the 12, would be these faithful witnesses. But this is not just true of them. This is true of official ministry today. So for me as a pastor, for elders, for deacons, like for those who serve the body, it's true that it must begin with the power of God Founded on the word of God that highlights the works of Christ. We don't get to make up any message that comes into our minds. We don't get to fabricate something that is new and exciting. No, we have the same old message that Jesus has come and died for our sins. And rose again on the third day. And we proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. Nothing new. This is required. It's required that. The Spirit empower such witness. But that's not just true for the apostles. It's not just true for like official church ministers today. It's also true for every single one of you. As you are called to be witnesses for the Lord. In your families, as parents, you're called to pass on the faith to the next generation, to your children... As you're called as part of a church, even as we heard this morning, to pass on the faith to the next generation, like in the baptismal vows or in the charge of the congregation, it's, it's not just the parents who are tasked with that responsibility. It's the whole church. As you're called to do that, you cannot do it in your own power. You cannot do it relying upon your own intellect. You cannot do it relying upon your own strength. It must be born out of a dependence upon God to open your mind for yourself to feed upon the scriptures and then in the power that God gives to bear witness to it, to your children, to those whom you would love to see become Christians and your witnessing, your neighbors and your families and everywhere you would proclaim Christ. It begins with a dependence upon the Lord. He brings peace, but he brings peace through the um, people that he has set apart and empowered for that task, his ambassadors. So you could say that these verses here for us and their promise of peace, they remind us to be a constantly dependent people, to be a people who don't rely upon our own strength, who trust not in our own ways, who, uh, who who depend, as we heard this morning from Proverbs 3, upon the Lord, to acknowledge Him, to let Him make straight our paths, to not be wise in our own eyes. These verses, and Jesus, in His interaction with the disciples in the upper room, call us, just as they called them, to be a radically dependent people upon the Lord. To pray, open my eyes, O Lord, to understand Your Word, and then use me to be Your witness. Give me, O Father, the power of Your Spirit, that I would go forth and proclaim Your Son, even unto my children. So these words call us, you and I, to be a dependent people, dependent ultimately upon the peace that Christ has won and given to us. Let us be such a peaceful and dependent people. Let's pray.